0: Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guests on today's podcast are two dear friends, um, who um, their names are Kent Griffiths and Nancy Eyre. Nancy is Kent Griffiths' daughter, so it's a father-daughter podcast team. We've never done that before, at least that I can remember. And let me give you a little bit of introduction on both of them. Kent Griffiths is a married father of five 15 grandchildren. He has um, a career, 46 years, as a a counselor and a therapist here in the Salt Lake City area. He has, um, tell us your graduate degree, tell us your master's and doctorate degrees.
1: My master's and doctorate are from the University of Utah in Social Work. And so tell us your official title. I know uh, you're not into titles, Kent. I actually have two of them, but I'm not into titles either. Um, licensed clinical social worker and licensed marriage and family therapist.
0: Do you have any idea after 46 years how many sessions you've... That's a big number, Kent.
1: Yeah, I have no idea. I really I have no idea. It has to be somewhere in the thousands, obviously.
0: It's in, it's in the 1000s and. Mm-hmm. Um, I Kent has kind of been my unofficial therapist. We have gone out to lunch over the last couple of years, and he has um, been a safe place for me to share some of the emotional challenges that I face in my own life. And he has been particularly helpful for me. He's never charged me for that. He occasionally lets me buy him lunch. But he is a gifted man with um, wonderful clinical skills and just interpersonal skills. And has helped me personally, and I'm honored to have him on the podcast. And I just know there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of families in this area that have been blessed by Kent and his lifelong ministry to bring hope and healing um, to others. And Nancy is here with us, Kent's daughter. She lives in Houston. I've been into Nancy and Dave's home, your husband's John. John. I'm getting you confused with your brother-in-law. Sorry about that, John. Um, You have six children, I believe. And tell our listeners um, your education background and what you're pursuing right now.
2: Yes, thank you so much for having us on. We're so honored to be here. And so, yes, I went to Brigham Young University in Hawaii and I studied, it's called TESOL, teaching English to speakers of other languages. So, I've taught refugees and international students and immigrants. And I currently, so I went back to school after many years of being out of school. And I'm at the University of Houston. And I'm doing my master's degree in social work.
0: That's really brave of you. And I think really cool. And anybody that sort of goes back to graduate school outside of their 20s and early 30s, I really admire that because you've been out of the academic world for a bit. Talk to our listeners just a little bit about your feeling of what you'd like to do with that. Some people go to graduate work and know exactly what they're going to do when they're done and other people just kind of a feeling on the doors it's going to open for them. And I think yours is more the latter. So share with our listeners a little bit about that.
2: Correct. Yes. I just have so many interests, but I do know that I want to advocate for marginalized groups and I love interfaith work. And I love advocacy and peacekeeping. So I'm going to be exploring that the next few years in school.
0: That is great. And um, Kent and Nancy are active Latter-day Saints, um, wonderful families. Um, Kent, your wife's name is Karen, I believe. Correct. Yes. And um, uh, what a wonderful couple they are, Nancy and John. John's a pediatric dentist, I believe, in the Houston area. Yes. And you have just a beautiful home. You've also are an LGBTQ ally, Nancy. Just introduce the organization you've started in the Houston area.
2: Yeah. So I became an ally a couple of years ago, and had my eyes open to the challenges of our Latter-day Saint LGBTQ brothers and sisters. And so I wanted to create a safe space, some kind of a support space. So we started. Um, a group called Lift Houston, and it's uh, for LGBTQ individuals, their families and allies. And we try to invite other people to the space to learn. We've invited speakers to come and talk. We've had potlucks and um, service projects. And so it's just been a great safe space for many people.
0: What a great um thing to be doing, a safe place for many people. I've had the chance to be in your home and be at one of those. And as many listeners may know, I'm my wife is from Houston, so we go to Houston quite a bit. And there was just a wonderful spirit in your home and a safe place for all of Heavenly Father's children. So I think you're doing exactly what Christ wants us to do and show love to everybody. And sometimes we need to show that by creating community so they can find safe places to to be together and share stories. Uh, so anyway, listeners on this podcast, I, I felt impressed to reach out to Kent and Nancy, um, two people I really admire that probably aren't very comfortable like most of my listener, most of my guests doing a podcast. Most guests come to the podcast a little nervous thinking, does their story matter or do they have insights? And I just think both of these um, individuals have wonderful insights to help us. They have started a a blog called um, Riverside-Chats. Is that right, Nancy?
2: Correct. So Riverside Chats, but the actual um, URL, Riverside-Chats.com.
0: And they have nine blogs on that and it's a work in process and they pretend would like to do more, but it's a a father-daughter blog and um, there's a lot of really good content there and we may get to some of those. Maybe you could just talk about, either of you, why you decided to do this.
2: Yeah, I'll just uh, briefly mention. So it basically is an opportunity for us to share kind of our reflections on life between a therapist and his daughter. So like a social worker and a social worker in training. Um, we named it Riverside because we have a family cabin that in the mountains that is along a river. And we have had many chats along the river talking about deep things about life and relationships and communication. And so we thought that would be an appropriate name. And kind of the concept is that we are we are informally chatting about life and about uh, relationships and mental health. And so we've we just have different topics that come to our mind and it's intended to be informal. And we, as was mentioned, just recently started this blog and hope to also create another platform with social media um, and, and love having other people involved as well. Some of these blogs are just insights from my father. Some are some of my own personal experiences some are combined, and, and even, you know, one blog post we used, the comments of other people incorporated in what we shared.
0: And I love some of these titles. We may get to them. Strategies to preserve yourself when interacting with a toxic personality. Proven strategies to keep you safe from worry. Um, just some really good ones. Are you increasing or de- decreasing other suffering? What a great title. So um, I want to get Kent talking, um, and I'm just going to ask him some open-ended questions. Um, and just somebody that, somebody that I look up to, and with so much experience, counseling LDS families. And that's become so important. There's such a need for that these days, for good. I always think we say, we need, I need Jesus, and I need a therapist. And I've been open that I've seen a couple of therapists in my life. But what would your message be to the world after all the visits you've done, Kent, and all the things
1: you've seen? Just talk about your message to the world. Well, that's a, that's a great question. It's a big question. It's, um, it's kind of an emotional question for me because every person that comes into my office, Richard, like without exception, I'm sorry, I'm sorry I'm emotional about feeling about this, but. <clears throat> They come in with pain, and it might be physical pain. It might be emotional pain. It's always pain, pain with their children, pain in their marriage, pain in relationships. And I just feel so overwhelmed sometimes or so obligated to impart to them something that gives them hope to... Go forward to find resolution to their dilemmas because, and I think, especially in this COVID environment we're in right now, I mean, people are really, they don't know what to do with themselves. They don't know what to do with the people they're living with. You would, you would think that their their relationships by and large might be strengthened, but not always. So I make a big deal. I make a big, big deal, and Nancy and I talk about this all the time, about emotional safety. Like, I have to be able to talk to Nancy or talk to you, Richard, because I feel safe talking to you, and you're my, you're my safe harbor. Like, I get to be me without being in trouble by you, which means that I can apologize for this. That I can, um, I can open my heart to you. And then whatever I say to you, I won't be judged. And you help me process it. And you treat it with respect. And I'm watching your eyes as I'm sharing maybe some things that are hard for me to talk about. You know, maybe the things I carry. Things I feel. And we live in a world where people don't have enough emotional safety in their very own homes. and And, and that means that can I talk to you about anything that i feel even if it might be controversial or a little scary or not your traditional subject and know that you'll you'll treat with respect you'll say can't thanks for sharing that with me that's been hard for you and wow, can you tell me more and what are you going to do with that and that you'll lead me a, maybe a little bit but at least you listen to me and you don't judge me that in a marriage is so crucial, um, diminishes that pain uh, big time. How do you teach um, a couple to
0: do that? Um, It sounds like some of your, a lot, you've had a lot of conversations where um, people are coming in and sharing things that they can't feel safe. They don't feel safe sharing with their spouse, and they probably would like to do that. And But this emotional safety that you're talking about, this environment where someone can honestly share how they feel and you even will validate how they feel and ask them follow-up questions to keep them talking as they open up vulnerably. What advice do you have for couples to create that in their marriage? Well,
1: there's a study that came out. It's a great question. Thank you. That came out of BYU, I guess it's a few years ago now, indicating that the greatest predictor of divorce, ultimately, um, has to do with those couples that have high conflict during their courtship. So if they're in high conflict during their courtship, that's going to continue on most likely into their marriages because the the false thinking is that once we get married and once we have sex and once we're settled down and we go to church and uh, have a kid or two that bonds us, that we're going to be okay. That is not always true. In fact, if anything, it sometimes adds Complicated life to those people. So, a suggestion that it, something my wife and I, have 50 years, Karen, talk about quite often that we feel is essential for our marriage. And this is kind of a little crazy thought, but it's kind of just something that's evolved for me over the years is to learn to get out of it before you get into it. What that means is if I see that I'm starting, I'm tired and I'm grouchy and I haven't had food and I'm a little snappy with Karen and I I, I try to catch that, use my filter and and be aware of that. And then I try to get out of it before I I get into it, which means that I try to step away from it, change the subject, uh, stop talking, go into another room, have a glass of milk. I mean, do anything that that allows me, at least for my part, to to have it not go where it could go. And most of the places where those things go to are stupid. There are things that people forget about the next day, um, and you ask them what it was that, that they fought about, and they really can't tell you. Now, having said that, there are some big themes in marriages that need to be addressed, and I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about the. Pretty much the everyday little things. And secondly, to to add to that, if they do get into it, um, that they learn to come back to the relationship as soon as possible. So I say to people, take your hour off. Um, Go get your diet coke and and take a ride and and, and spend some time alone. Don't have it be two or three days because stonewalling and being irritable with your spouse are the two greatest killers of a marriage, along with criticism and cynicism. And, you know, John Gottman has written extensively about those subjects, but um, take your downtime and then come back to the relationship. And I say to people, small talk at that point, don't come back to the issue unless we need to talk about the mortgage for this month. But just kind of talk about the kids or talk about small things. And then usually when people get on a roll, they're okay and they're chit-chatting. And then it's, hey, do you want to watch Netflix together? And off they go. And and usually they're okay. That's very helpful. Just a thought, Richard.
0: It's really good. So many Because I just love this. um, Marriages have emotional safety. And we need therapists in our life that can do that. And we need friends. But I think if those of us that are married... Or those of us that want to be married um, want that, and they want to be able to talk about things that are, you know, political differences or different things within our own faith or different feelings about raising children. There's rightly so differences, and often when those are talked about, the goal isn't to get everybody to, to be the same in all of those. It's just create a framework where we're emotionally safe, to use your vocabulary. Any more
1: thoughts on that, Kent? Or Yeah, I'm just Man- writing some notes here, Richard, Good. as you're talking. Um, if we, um, It's so important to say, I'm sorry. Nancy and I wrote a, a blog about that. Just, I'm so sorry. That is so healing. It's so hard for people to say, I'm so very sorry. And that latter part, will you please forgive me? Will you forgive me? Because most people, when we say that, are quick to give us a pass. Now, not every time if we repeat the same behavior, we just say, oh, I'm sorry. And passing, are we going to get that pass? But if it's, if it's a mistake we're going to make, we're all going to make thousands in our lifetime. We're going to say, I said, I said, told Nancy last year at the Snowbird, we had some time this weekend to uh, talk. And I was, uh, she was telling me something. I was looking on my phone. And she said, dad, I don't like it when you look at your phone and it makes me feel like you're disconnected from me. And what are you going to do with that? And so obviously I said, I'm sorry. And I put my phone away, which I thought was a a very appropriate uh, little confrontation on her part. But emotional safety, Richard, just to finish that part. If I talk to somebody once or twice about what I really feel and I get judgment I get admonished. I get the lecture of my life. I get pontification, so to speak. And I try that again, and it doesn't go well again. I try that three or four times. And even in marriage, I'm not going there the sixth or seventh or tenth or twelfth time. I'm not going there with you because it doesn't work. And so, what do people do in those relationships where they don't have emotional safety to talk about the things they really feel? They tuck it inside. They work out like heck. They spend money. They spend. Uh, they eat food. Um, they find someone else to talk to, and sometimes that leads to problems, as we all know. Um, I talk to people every day who don't have emotional safety, and I ask them what their compensations are. You know, meaning, what do you do to take care of the need? Because they have to have some kind of a compensation.
0: That's very insightful. Talk to listeners. So just talk to me. Let's say that I, I'm i not sure I'm emotionally safe for my partner. I don't know necessarily if my wife has um, kept, keep things bottled up because I haven't been safe in the past. What what things can I do? And this is you talking to listeners to make sure that I'm an emotionally safe person for my partner. Is, is there things I can just sort of telegraph or say directly or that create a feeling that I'm safe for my partner to open up to me.
1: It's a great question. Let me, let me approach it this way. I call it prefacing. So I might use you and I might say, you know, Richard, you're a guy. So I'm going to say, I, I'm going say this to you because I'm not married to you, but, um, I, you know, I have some, I have some things I want to talk to you about. And I'm nervous and I'm scared to share them with you because I don't, by history, know or believe fully that it'll go well. And I, and I think we have to both be in a good place to kind of, you know, like we've been fed and we're not tired. And you know, Are you in a good place where I could share some things with you? And by the way, would you not interrupt me until I'm through? And will you please take notes if you need to? And at the end, will you tell me everything you feel in response? Um, because I have to get this off my chest. Am I safe now? Am I safe to share with you what I feel because I'm worried about judgment and interruption, etc. And if you say, wow, sure, fire, then I'm going to tell you what I feel. And, and, if you, and if you do your typical tactic, which might be to interrupt me or to say, I don't believe that, or that's not the way it is, or disagree with me. Etc., which is what stops people from continuing Then I'm going to, I'm going to call you on it. And I'm going to say, Richard, Nancy, I have to be able to get through this. You promised me, you would allow me my day in court. I have, I can do this in 10 minutes. I do this in five minutes. If you just give me the time and that I, am I okay? And then I proceed with my feelings and my summary. And, and I hope you're listening. And I say, please, please. Do listen with your heart at the beginning of a piece I missed, out, I missed. And then at the end, I say, well, what do you think? And I'm nervous about saying sure. that. I think if a person could have a response that says, I didn't know you felt that way. And I'm sorry. And wow, what do you think we should do? And what's my role in that? And what can I do to help you through that and help us through that? That moves mountains. For people, people do not communicate that way. So and answer to your question specifically, I think we need to teach people how to communicate with us. And I think we need to say, I'm sensitive. So when you talk to me, sometimes you have to kind of do it this way. Well, the response often, will be, do I have to do it your way? Kind of. Like on these matters, on this subject, if we're talking about my family and I feel you're criticizing my sibling again, You have to go easy and not launch into a criticism. You have to say, hey, I have some some concerns about your brother, some thoughts. Are you, can I share this with you? And I'm going to say no. I'm going to say, I really don't want, honey, to talk about that today or to hear it. So. It's very, very helpful. That's a mouthful.
0: It's probably good to get some thoughts on Nancy because, you know, just seeing this first 10. Married
1: 17 years, right?
0: Um, your thoughts on this, Nancy?
2: I just wanted to add something to that. So we did do a blog post called Safe Spaces, a question and answer. And one of the questions was, how do you communicate to someone that you want to be a safe space for them? And my father's response, just by saying I'm a safe space, means nothing to people up front. People will test it. They will share a little bit and see how you respond. They will share more if they feel safe. It's a developmental process. New people I meet will observe to see if I'm a good listener, if I don't interrupt, if I seek to understand, if I'm intent with my questions and follow-up. Also, staying away from platitudes are important. For example, this will all work out for the better. can sound nice and supportive, but can often shut people down. Um, we also you know, talked a little bit about just, again, how the way that people respond is most critical to emotional safety, like showing empathy, again, asking probing questions, keeping your information confidential and not telling other people what you share, Um, saying thank you. And I'm sorry and extending kindness at every opportunity. Um, One thing I just wanted to add personally is that's something I, I have been so grateful for is my dad showing me the importance of, of being a safe space And he will often say to me, when I've shared something personal or hard, difficult, he will say, thank you so much for feeling safe to share that with me. And I have found that to be so critical and I wanted to extend that into my relationships. So I just wanted to add that.
0: It's really good. Do you feel safe talking to your dad about everything?
2: Many, many subjects, yes. I would say most things. He is definitely a safe place for me.
0: Isn't that what we want as parents um, and as husband and wife? Um, I love, Kent, as you were talking, I love that blog post, and we'll put the link to that, um, these, this blog in our podcast description, you can get to all of these individual blog posts. But I love, Kent, where you kind of laid ground rules for the conversation before you had the conversation. Um. And so you kept it kind of out of the emotional triggering realm and just said, this is what I'd like to do before you kind of had the conversation. It seemed to diffuse some of the emotional tension that could result in the actual conversation with the kind of the groundwork you laid. And you just, I like, kind of liked that way of doing that. And I think that's very helpful. And I like the way you gave permission for people to have boundaries and say, no, I wouldn't, I don't want to have you right now talk about my family and what's hard about your family. It doesn't mean you're going to put your head in the sand and never talk about it, but I think you're just teaching there that in some situations, those conversations still need to happen, but one person just isn't the right spot to have that conversation right now. And so I thought that was very helpful. Uh, More thoughts on this, just, it's kind of under this umbrella message to the world, but now it's talking about relationships and principles to keep relationships together.
1: I was just thinking as you were just now talking, Richard, What you think about the question of what do couples have that you see sitting in church or in the neighborhood or walking up and down the street? What do they seem to have when they appear to be close? But the couples that really, to me, have intimate relationships are people that can banter. I mean they don't like tease each other. They like not mercifully, but they they banter. Nancy and John banter constantly. In it a kind way. Cracks me up in a mm-hmm. in a kind way. In a very kind way. It cracks me up. Um and she and she does the same things with the kids and they do with her. And um they smile a lot with one another. They show respect in every word indeed. They just show respect. They can they disagree. With words such as, you know, I just, boy, I just don't, haven't seen it that way. And, I, you know, help me more instead of launching into their position without that filter being in place. That filter is really a, a big word in this conversation. And they have a degree of intimacy, whether that's holding hands or stuff that we don't need to talk about here. But they share an intimacy that allows you to know that they have a working relationship.
0: I love that segment. Um, That's doable. It seems like everybody should be able to do that. Nancy, as he describes your relationship with John, just talk about that. I love the bantering. And I I love that that's part of the culture of your family in a positive, healthy way. I sense like your marriage, like all marriages, there's differences. Um, To just talk about that and how you, that doesn't become a wedge in your marriage, but just it may be a good thing, especially for your kids to see differences and you come together as a unified couple, even with differences.
2: I think a lot of it is just being able to laugh at ourselves. And we kind of joke about things like how John wants to go to bed and I still have one more thing to tell him and his eyes are, you know, fading away. And I'm like, oh, but I have one more thing. And I think just being able to laugh at ourselves that has just been so healthy for our relationship instead of being upset or angry. And that's one thing I've observed too with my parents is that they can laugh about things that you could easily get upset about. And so that's something that has been really um, helpful. And I think to, also to, what, to add to what my dad was saying and something that he's really emphasized to his children is the importance of gratitude and express expressing gratitude often. And I think that is something in my marriage that we do try to express often what we are grateful for. And I think in relationships in general, that we improve our relationships when we say thank you for the little things and thank you for the big things.
0: Love that. More thoughts that come to your mind, Kent, you want to share with our listeners?
1: Yeah, I just had, I had to keep writing here. <laughs> um, you know, it, always have something to look forward to. You know, i think saying once again, especially in this environment, have some little thing you look forward to, jump, you know, take a ride in your car, walk down the street, uh, go on, get a drink, do a drive-through. Um, I think people that get really stuck don't have really anything to look forward to. And I know that life is hard. I know life is hard for people who have small children and large families sometimes and education and, and church and so much to do. But I think people have to have something to look forward to. And, and, and not only as a couple, but for self. I think people have, Nancy in her graduate program is telling me that they really emphasize this a lot. They need to self nurture. But they need to identify what they need because really at the end of the day, the only person that's going to take care of me is me. Really. And I mean, people can say, dad, you look like you need, you know, you need some time for yourself. Well, fine. But I'm the guy who has to create that time for myself. And, and at the cabin, Nancy mentioned, I, I'm a guy who likes to be alone once in a while and I get restored in nature. If I have a minute or two or a minute or two, a day or two by myself, where I can think and, and now have actually have expectation. And then the other thing I wanted to add to, if we're talking kind of about relationships globally here is just take out the snippy snappy stuff. That's the big killer in relationships where people talk to one another with disrespect in the tone of voice. And I say to people, TOV is everything. Like Just write that down right now. TOV is everything. And so when, when there's that little snippy, that little, that little snap, you know what I'm talking about, that yeah. tone of voice that is just not respectful, then there's a the tendency to kind of, you know, I'm, I'm going to one-up you. So, yeah. the, so then you're in a, in, in a vicious cycle of keeping score, of one-upsmanship, and that continues in, in, in many relationships, excuse me, a lifetime And when you ask people to kind of look at that and give that up, they feel like they're giving up a part of their identity because if they give up that and become respectful, then they're going to be vulnerable to the attacks of the other person. So you have to have both people agreeing to that approach. The the toughest cases that I work with by far are the high conflict relationships where no matter what, they don't agree, like nothing rolls. And so I say, what works? (laughs) Can you tell me what works in your relationship? And often they cannot tell me uh, what feels good in their relationship. And it's the saddest darn thing in the world because they go spend a lifetime often in that mode.
0: That's honest. And you're seeing real life stuff.
1: Nancy, thoughts that come to your mind on this
0: or any other subject?
2: Well, and I think this is connected to something else uh we had wanted to explore and we uh did a, a blog post on strategies to deal with a toxic personality. Um just one thought to that before before my father talks a little bit about that. But I think something valuable that he taught us growing up too was this concept of small potatoes, um, meaning to not make a big deal out of things that don't need to be such a big deal. And that is could be such a blessing in our relationships with our family members, with our children, um, in our friendships, and um, to not to not make such a big deal out of things that don't need to be a big deal.
0: How do you do that? So let's say I'm aware of something that's not a big deal, that, and I'm sure my wife's aware of something that, it's sort of something perhaps my wife has promised to do that hasn't been done. And there's probably things that, you know, there's probably the same number of things in both sides. So how do I keep that from not def- some not overdefining our relationship or becoming a wedge and trying to get out of that sort of keeping score, aware of missed promises or mistakes or t- tit for tat sort of mosaic law that a marriage can get into?
1: You know, Richard, someone once said that the reasons people, the main reason people don't resolve their conflicts is, is they don't talk long enough. Meaning, the longer people talk, to, if it's in the, the right spirit, they're going to come up with a, a resolution, a plan A to try. And then let's, that didn't work. Let's try plan B. But you're in a committed, reciprocal, conversational relationship. Where your commitment is to talk until you problem solve, and on that note of of toxic personality, just by definition, yeah. Um, for me, it's two words. It's it's being with people who very often and without provocation experience flash anger with another person, meaning. It can come out of the clear blue, and all of a sudden, because of a word or just an emotion or a mood or uh, I don't know where it comes from most of the time, they're angry, and they're not just saying'm'm I'm, I'm, I'm angry, they're loud, they're attacking, they're unhappy, and they're long-winded and 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 those people have don't have that filter and lack insight, usually into the fact that they're even doing that and do feel justified in doing that if called and confronted on it. And if they're called and confronted on it, it usually escalates because you're not listening to what I have to say. And they're the hardest people to be around. There's a book called Stop Walking on Eggshells by Mason and Kreger, K-R-E-G-E-R. And there's others since that really gives some really helpful hints about how to deal with these kinds of people. And when you talk to most people, they'll say, I don't have a lot of those kind of people in my life, but I sure have run into a few. And I ask them, how do you deal with them? And they say, I avoid them like the plague. Because those people who are toxic usually end up being alone because people do not want to be around them for very long. Now, do we use every opportunity to find goodness in them and compliment them and praise them and them up, of course we do, and especially in their good moments. But, um, but, but it doesn't seem to have staying power. That when they're in that, and no one even knows what causes it—hormonal or uh, environmental—or uh, it's a reactive mood that people slip into. Uh medication doesn't seem to help a whole lot, by the way. Um, um, that I think we're that I think our responsibility is to to distance ourselves from those people. I've told people that really at the end of the day, that maybe the only thing you can do is to say, excuse me, I have to uh, I have to slip away for a few minutes now because that conversation often will not end. That's helpful.
0: More thoughts on this blog post about interacting with a toxic personality?
1: Well, the other one is, is setting clear boundaries. Um, when a person is in that flash anger mode, setting clear boundaries is a waste of time. They're not hearing you. They don't listen. They don't care what you have to say, they only want to say what they want to say. So, a book that is felt helpful, it's a Christian book, is uh, a book called Boundaries by Henry Cloud, like the clouds. And setting clear boundaries is really like saying, "You, You don't get to talk to me like that. That's offensive. That's hurtful. Please don't do that. Not too long, not a long lecture, but just, and if you do, I will probably remove myself because. Trying to negotiate something when they're on in that mode is usually a waste of time. So removing yourself, preserving yourself, protecting yourself at that point, don't argue with them. Don't say, I didn't do that. That's not true. That's not the case because they're not, their filter isn't going to allow it, it to be heard. So remove yourself.
0: I think you're giving permission where it's needed in toxic relationships to remove yourself and to create boundaries and, and not to feel you've failed or you should do something more. I think there comes a point, and you know this better than I do is, is you need to remove yourself from a toxic relationship and it's, and Heavenly Father, I think is at peace with that because he wants people to be emotionally healthy and, and you can't change somebody likely unless they go to therapy and, um, to cause them to be not toxic. So I think that that's just the practicality of some situations. Any more thoughts on this, Kent
1: or Nancy? I think that Richard, sometimes when, when we talk about removing ourselves, sometimes that's just for now. Good. I like that. And sometimes that's forever. Like there are some people who don't want to be around anymore. um, so it's, but hopefully it's for now and we give people a pass and they come around and it'll be nice if they apologized and talked a little bit about what happened. Um, Nancy just slipped me a, a piece of paper here that we'd written about um, to, to seek third party support. I mean, this is something, if you're living with a, t- a toxic personality or have a lot of interaction with, with a toxic personality at work or at church or wherever you might be, you know, have a person, and Nancy likes to call it a trench buddy. Um, to call upon for safety and support. And maybe all you're going to do is just unload to that individual or those individuals that are trench buddies about how you feel violated and, and there's a mischaracterization of you and, and you're angry about being attacked that way. And that person should just listen and just go, wow, that must've been hard. I'm sorry you went through that. And because there's a tendency to kind of, in our society to kind of speak for the person who blew up at us and say, have you considered they've gone through this or maybe they just had a rough day or uh, did you do anything to provoke that? Maybe maybe so, but at that moment, I just need to tell you what I'm feeling. I just need to tell you, I'm not happy about being attacked. So third-party support, I think is huge. and We all have to have that emotional safety, trench buddy, third-party support in our life. And hopefully everyone out there has one or two people in their world that they can go to and go to at the deepest, deepest level of what they feel and, and impart uh, their feelings and be safe with those feelings. I love that. Nancy, things to add to that.
2: Well, I, I, I'm definitely not an expert on that topic, but I think one thing connected to that that I, I would love to mention um, one of the other blog discussions that we had was to ask ourselves that question are we increasing or decreasing others' suffering? One of the most powerful questions that I heard that someone said they ask themselves anytime they interact with another person. And when you leave their presence to ask yourself, did I just increase their suffering or did I decrease it? And I think that is so powerful. And we, we did give a few ideas. I'll, I'll share some of them, but there's so many others. And I think we talked about some of them, like expressing gratitude and saying, I'm sorry. So some of the things that can increase suffering, um, is listening with your half self, right? Is, um, and that's something that, that my father and I talk so much about is the importance of listening and how when we don't listen well, that can increase people's suffering. Um, When we interrupt and, you know, a lot of times we'll bring the conversation back to ourselves rather than let someone finish what they're saying, giving unsolicited advice can increase people's suffering and making judgment about what the sender is sharing with you. Um, people will stop sharing if they anticipate that you're making judgments about what they share. So those were a few things that we talked about. Also, I think decreasing suffering back to what we were saying earlier is letting people be heard and providing emotional safety. And you, you send that message, I'm attentive. What you matter says to me, I respect your thoughts. You're safe to share what you need to with me. Leaving people with a genuine compliment. That's another thing that, that my dad talks a lot about. And I see that in action. When we go places, he just is very quick to give compliments to people. And it just do, does wonders for the soul. Expressing gratitude, as we talked about, calling people by their name. People love to hear the sound of their name. Using it often in your conversations. And I think leaving people with hope. Some conversations may be heavy or difficult, um, but I found that when we, ch- we leave someone's presence, it's good to somehow leave things on a positive note, expressing gratitude, leaving with a compliment, and again, providing hope. So just a few thoughts. If you I you want have to, add nothing to add to
0: that.
1: that. You covered it, honey. Thank you.
0: You know, Nancy, that's, uh, I love that. What a great mindset to approach interaction with others. Am I adding to suffering or relieving suffering? Um, I think of frontline service workers who can take the brunt of our bad days. I had somebody in my life that I spent time with and that person took it out um, on frontline service workers, not my immediate family. And I, you know, it just culturally and sometimes airline workers get a bunch of it. You know, we are critical of airline people that book our, you know, that check us in for flights when we're traveling. And there's just so many examples of where are we increasing or decreasing suffering and the principles you teach there. My mission president taught us to learn people's names and he taught us the importance of of a name and that that's a skill we could all learn. Some people say I'm not good at names and he challenges on that. He'd say, well, that may be just, you don't want to learn that, but you can really learn people's names. And, um, there's some really basic principles of humanity you teach there that aren't very complicated about a smile or a name or a specific compliment that you can give to people in your life. Um, Over your head as I'm looking at you is a picture of the Savior, and as you were talking about that section, I thought of that's what the Savior did. Um, It seems like his whole ministry was lifting and bringing hope and healing I mean, there were some times where we tossed some tables, but those were the exceptions and needed rebuke. But even in that, I think he wants to teach that we love people even increasingly so that they know our love for them hasn't changed even in a, a moment of correction. I love that. And we don't do that very well in society. And we're in the middle of a political election where there's not much of that going on in a really divisive political environment where it's become very personal. And this isn't meant to be critical of any party in particular, but just of our, you know, that somehow, you know, that negativism towards the other person is justified right now. And I just think we need to move to a higher, holier way where we're standing for our beliefs on our own merits without personal attacks on other people. It's a really good one. It's doable, it's not complicated in this last segment we're going to talk about Scott Griffiths Scott Griffith is Scott Griffiths is Kent's son and Nancy's brother who died um, by suicide three years ago. a young man that I never met, but um feel like I've gotten to know him as I've listened to Kent and Nancy talk about him and um, what we wanted to do in this segment is um these two people know this road of losing a close loved one to suicide. And it's been about three years and they have cl- clinical expertise about this area as well as personal experience. So I'd love to can't have both of you kind of speak to for parents and family members that have just gotten on this tragic road. This has just happened. What, what would you say to them?
1: Well, can I take that from a couple of different angles? really. Um, I, First of all, I there there are not words in the English language to cover the feelings uh, of grief and loss and in the emotions associated with the loss of a of a loved one, especially a child. I mean, we we're supposed to go first, and I. I remember at his funeral a week later I was absolutely numb. I don't remember what I said, I don't remember who came. Uh, Karen had to show me the pictures and the cards later. And it's like really they were there and it's like so you're absolutely I think the only thing that could be worse in life is to have a child abducted and never know what happened to that child. To me. Um and as a therapist uh I did my doctoral dissertation on teenage suicide uh i that finished it in uh eighty five and and the guilt that I've carried it's honest forever since then since Scott's death, well, yeah, for the last three years is what did I miss? I mean, I talked to people every day i did on-call crisis intervention for about twenty years, and saw hundreds of cases of people, young people normally that had a test uh, attempted, and I couldn't save my own son. What kind of imposter am I? And I think parents feel that out there in their daily events with their children. I try so hard, and I know Nancy and I have talked about this a lot. Is I try so hard and my kids are rats and they act out. And where did I fail? And I can, I can define 20 areas where I failed with Scott. I mean, you talk about building a career and, and working and hours and, you know, being emotionally unavailable. But at the end of the day, he had a severe mental illness and, was not entirely shocking when it happened, but it was horrible and horrific and will be in my mind forever in the matter that it happened. Um, I say to people that it's better to say something imperfectly than to say nothing at all, which means when people came to our doorstep after his death and just knocked on the door, or left a text and just said, I just want you to know I love you and thinking of you, you and I'm so sorry. That's all I wanted to hear. There were many people, I'm not saying this critically because I think people just don't know what to do with it. I remember one time when it happened to me and a lady, her son had died in a similar way. And I saw her coming down an aisle of a grocery store and I turned around and went the other way. Because I didn't know what to say to her to comfort her. I was I felt absolutely inadequate. So I think there are people that just don't know what to say, so they say nothing at all. They're not malintended at all. Um, and then on Nancy's point, I think it's really important once in a while we're okay to say, you know, Nancy, how are you, how are you doing? Really, You know, your, your brother died maybe about three years ago. How are you dealing with that? How are you holding up? I actually feel better. I had a, a client asked me that this week a gentleman who avoids the subject because people avoid the subject and uh, even my best friend avoids it. It's, he's, he found himself on a trip we recently, recently went to and kind of mystery and him, stopped himself and, and just kind of going in a different direction. Cause I think it was uncomfortable for him. I don't say that critically. Um, it's okay to say, how are you? Um, I just think that in time it, for me, it doesn't get less hard. It only gets farther away. And so I'm able to now live more in denial and more in compensation and compartmentalization, putting it away. But I feel from a spiritual standpoint that my son gets the things of life that he couldn't get here and he's a greater soul. And he was a wonderful human being uh, 35 or 34 in the ACT, first time kind of a guy. And there's been no judgment in our family of him. And that has been Good. The, the miracle. Y- you've told me a
0: little bit about that story. And I've learned some more things. But to be honest, the, the, I remember when we were at lunch talking about Scott and you were open to with this idea that I'm a fraud. I think you actually used that word. It was just, it was really shocking to me that you felt that way, but I've, I've, I was so glad you were just honest. I don't agree with that. <laughs> um, but I was so glad that you were honest with how you felt. Cause I, I think that was, I think we need to have emotionally safe places where we can share how we really feel. And and it helped me just to build more empathy for you and my love for you and my respect for you increased because I, I think, you know, you've saved many people from suicide and you have helped many people, families that have gone down that road, but then to sort of have that happen in your own situation and the crushing blow that was perhaps on obviously on a personal emotional level, but even potential on a professional level. And the fact you articulated that on the podcast and to me um, I don't think it's true, but I thought it was honest of you to to share that. And I, I'm glad you shared it in the podcast because I would guess a lot of parents feel the same way on some level if they've lost a child to suicide, that they've failed. And this is a moral failing on their part. And if they just somehow did a better job in some area at some point, that this wouldn't happen. And I like where you pivoted from those internal feelings to at the end of the day your son had a serious mental illness. And you weren't on some level surprised it happened because you understood mental illness and understand that understood the totality of his situation and that not in every situation is a mental illness solvable. Um or, I, and I'll just send it back to you to see if you have any more follow-up comments on that on my
1: segment there. I just one more comment then I'd like Nancy to respond because I love you. (laughs) Um, You know, I think if, if there's anything, is good the right word? If there's anything good that has come out of this for me is that I feel like I'm a much, and I say this with no boastfulness, I'm a much deeper person. Like when people, <clears throat> excuse me, when come in and, and begin, if they've had this kind of loss or any loss, any loss, I listen, I try to, and I hope I do, so much more deeply and intently than I used to. My questions are so much more probing, my expressions of love, I hope are so much more tender, and I hope validating to what they're feeling. And so I think good things, once again, if that's the right word, can come from these um, horrible things in our lives that I think that can deepen the soul at levels that, that are unimaginable. Nancy?
0: And that just honors Scott. What a wonderful way to honor Scott. And I think you've relieved a lot of burdens parents and families. You share your own story, and they recognize this can happen in any family. Um, no matter the level of clinical understanding of mental illness, this can happen in any family. And you have a wonderful family with a wonderful son. And it's just the reality of mortality. Nancy, to you.
2: <laughs> yeah, just a few thoughts. Thanks, Dad, for sharing that. Um, if I were to say the one word that describes my dad, it would be a healer, and one word to describe my mom, it would be a nurturer. So you take a healer and a nurturer, and you have this happen to their son and in their family. Um, it's it's quite tragic, and I think seeing my parents' grief has added uh, a layer to my grief. And I like to believe, and I do believe, that most. I want to believe that most suicides can be prevented. And sometimes I have felt grief that I don't understand why my brothers wasn't able to be prevented with all the help and treatment. But like my father mentioned, and being able to understand mental illness and just as some physical illnesses, even with treatment, can't be treated. That, unfortunately, was the case for my brother. Um, one thing that I learned is that we all grieved differently and responded differently and we had to respect how each family member grieved. Some people needed to talk about it more, some less. Some people needed to study about depression and mental illness and some people needed to study about the afterlife. And so I think for all of us we we grieved in different ways and we all need to respect that when we lose someone that people aren't going to necessarily respond the same way that we are. And I, for me, it was important. I, I joined a support group It was a survivors of suicide group. And that was something that was helpful to me to not feel so alone as my family was here and able to support each other. And I was in Texas and be able to be in a group of people that had lost children or parents or siblings and to not feel so alone and to feel like there were people that understood and that we could support each other. Like was mentioned by my dad, I think it's important to ask people, and sometimes it's okay to say, I don't know what to say. I just want to say, I'm thinking of you, or I'm sorry, I love you. And I think for us, having lost my brother, that we take it upon ourselves to bring him up, to remember him and honor him. And when we're together for holidays, um, to, to bring up a memory. And I think that's something that's been really healing for us is, is to make sure that we don't leave him out and that we, we talk about him in our conversations and talk to our children and the grandchildren and remind them of, What a wonderful person he was, and his his compassion and his empathy, and how smart he was, and how he would teach my kids so many things in nature and in science, and and um, just being able to honor him. And I think my last comment kind of related to what my dad was saying, but um, is being able to make meaning of it. You know, it's not per se that there's the silver lining, but I think for all of us it really has deepened us in so many ways. And I feel like so many of the journeys that I've been on have um, come about because of my brother's death. And so I feel like I was able to make meaning of the loss.
0: More thoughts that come to either of your mind. I assume,
1: go ahead, Kent. I just, if anyone is looking for a good literature, this is a little handout book. If it's appropriate, Richard, to mention that I found uh, uh, it's a thought for the day, but it's not like silly. It's really profound. It's uh, written by a woman, Martha Hickman. It's called Healing After Loss, and it's a little thirty-second read, but it's profound. And I tell people, you, you know, you don't have to follow the daily read. You can go to another date, and if it doesn't resonate with you. Don't finish it, go to another section. But I think it's nice to have something to carry around. It's a little tiny little book to put in their pocket and to carry around when they just need a little hope or a little thought for the day. Why did you name Scott, Scott? Just like the name. wasn't named after anybody in the family. thought it was cool. It's a great name. Yeah, thank you. Um, I think
0: he still has that name, and he's proud of that name, and he's felt proud of the Griffith name and how you honor him. And I love talking. I would intuitively, before I stepped into space, never ask you about Scott. Um, I would think that would be a subject that would bring up pain for you, so I would avoid it. But I recognize for trusted friends and in trusted situations, as I continue to ask you about Scott and aspects of his life or learning that he would got a top notch on the GMAT or the ACT, to me, unless correct me if I'm wrong, that you don't want him to be forgotten, just like you're doing in your family. You want to talk about him, so even your friends and associates, as they occasionally talk about Scott, or that to me is generally helpful. Is that true?
1: Yeah, the tough one. I, we I always say that I have five children. I don't say I have four and lost one. Good, but one of the tough questions that comes up is, well, how did he die? then I have to decide if I want to share with that person or not. And sometimes uh, I just say, I I kind of, I'm not fully honest. I say, I'm really sick, because he was. And he passed away in, you know, September, 2017. And, you know, you find in life, Richard, that people can be, you can change the subject real quickly and go back to them. And they won't come back. They won't say, well, wait a minute, Kent. you got to finish that. My question, I'm not satisfied because you can. So I deflect. Um, sometimes I'll say he was very ill mentally and he chose to take his life. I hate the word suicide. Good. Uh, well, well, tell us why. Uh, it's just, I just Why do we hate it now? See, we've talked about it.
2: It's just a hard word. It's hard to accept that it happened in your family. And I know you've talked a lot about you know, the right language. I obviously we prefer died by suicide um, versus over committed committed because usually people use that with a, a crime or sin. And so that's really hard for me. Um, But often we'll just, when speaking, you know, we'll use other terms, but it it is the right term. It just is hard to say it, to have the words come out of your mouth when it's happened to your own family.
0: So if I, instead of, I focus on how Scott died, if, it's more, tell, you know, I know your son's passed away. I guess the natural thing is our minds go to tell me the story, but I think a more pastoral or ministering approach would be to learn about Scott. Tell How me about are you him. doing? Tell me about Scott. Tell me what his degree, you know, tell me about his life. And, and there's, this is a beautiful human being. As I read his obituary just a couple of days ago to kind of prepare for this podcast, he's just a great man. And I, my life is I would have loved to have met him. I've met many of your siblings now and your children, but I would love to have met Scott. My life would have been better getting to know Scott.
1: Um, Well, he was our oldest and he was 45. And I think it's great when people ask, hey, tell me a story about you and Scott, or you and Scott and the family. Like, what did you guys do for vacation? What was, what is memorable? What was fun? I love to go there. Because it's also always, it's such a depressing subject otherwise. And it's like, well, and then, you know, and and then so you share what you're going to share. And I, I still don't know really what I'm going to share in terms of how and what. And then it kind of changes the tone of the conversation be honest. I'd love to
0: see some of those pictures, you know, of you and Scott and these trips together when you talk about memories. I bet there's great pictures of the two of you together. Absolutely. The family.
2: I think it goes back to as well, like depending on how emotionally safe we feel with people Mm -hmm. depends on how much information we share. So Mm -hmm. if we don't feel emotionally safe, we're probably not going to share that much. But Which
1: makes sense. And the hard part, just if I can make just one last comment on that. Are the the people that are well intended but they say things that are hurtful uh to us um it, it was meant to be it was foreordained in the in the uh preexistence um he's in a better place um, um it's it, it was a, maybe a weakness in his soul uh Gosh, one lady said, you know, uh, or thought, and I guess she said it, um, if it can happen to the Griffiths family, I guess it could happen to any of us because you're a therapist and wow. And so I, I think not, not intended to be hurtful, but don't say those things to people. Just, just be supportive and just tell them you care about them. And, 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 you know, instead of asking how they can help, if, if there's, a loss and a recent loss, just take over. A, I was going to say fruitcake, but people don't like fruitcake. So, you know, take over a card or a, a cookie and put it on their porch with a little thought. Just do something simple to let them know that you're thinking of them. I love
0: that. We read this quote a lot when you talk about your work, your ministry as part of being a therapist. I read this quote a lot. A minister's service will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded by the suffering about which he speaks. The great illusion of leadership is is to think others can be led out of a desert by someone who's never been there. And and you know this desert really well, Kent. Um, And now you know it firsthand, which is something obviously is your worst nightmare that's become reality. But I do like the way... In that earlier segment, with a lot of emotion, you're able to go and help people in a way that perhaps wasn't possible. And I do agree that sometimes we say things like you were mentioning in that last segment, that I call them the nice, tidy box sayings. They keep me emotionally safe. And I can kind of just check this off too. But if I... Those comments are more about keeping me emotionally safe and not having to engage in the situation than they are about my responsibility to minister to you and really understand the complexity of this and the pain of it, which is a better chance of lifting your burden versus adding to your burden with some of those comments that I'm sure I've made in the past. This has been a really great podcast. Are there other things that either of you would like to share?
2: I just want to say thank you. For all the work you do, I know you don't like attention on you, but you are doing such an important work. And I think hearing people's stories is life changing. And the stories that you've had on this podcast, I feel have had such a profound effect on my life. And I think ultimately, that's just what I want to share is that we just need to listen to people more and hear people's stories. You know, Brene Brown talks about moving in, right? And, um, I think just be fascinated by people, and and get to know the context to people's lives, and and really kind of this work that we're doing. And at the end, it's it is about relieving, decreasing suffering, and that's what we hope to do is is through this is is to help um, relieve the suffering of others.
1: It's great, Nancy. One thing you know you need to know about Richard: if you go to lunch with him. If he finds something that he likes on the menu, he orders it every single time. And you say, Richard, there are 50 things on that wall that you could order from He says, but I like that Hawaiian pizza, Kent. And it's just just a side note there, Richard. (laughs) That is a very
0: good insight. Um, I do sort of get to like something and then I just stick with it. Well, my wife and I sure love you guys and your families, your dear friends. Um, I feel a real connection because of my Texas wife to you, Nancy, and, and John and Houston. And Kent, you've been a personal mentor and minister to me as I've worked through complicated things. And during those lunches, your son-in-law, as he introduced you to me once or talked about you before I got to know you, your son-in-law, Steve, said, you know, Kent, Um, when he gets to the gates, they will just, there will be no questions asked. They will just open as wide as can be and welcome him home. And you may not, no one probably feels worthy of that kind of compliment, but I, that's how I feel about you and your son-in-law and your family and many people that you've helped. Um, The service you're doing doesn't really show up on LDS tools as a, you have an LDS tools calling and you're, but this work you're doing um, that you've been doing for four decades now has helped a lot of people. And I'm aware of some of those people and I am one of those people. So Nancy Eyre and Kent Griffiths, and please check out riverside chats.com. We'll link to it in the podcast copy for more of their blogs. Thank you, our listeners, for joining us on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.